Okay, uh, this Bible reading is from the book of 1 Corinthians, which we're looking at at public meetings uh, this year. Uh, It's chapter 3, verses 5 to 17. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose and they will each be rewarded according to their own labour. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it but each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is in Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Well, leadership is a hot topic in the church today. It's not really surprising that it's such a hot topic. It's because leadership is a hot topic in the secular world around us. Management is out, leadership is in, and for good or ill, what's big in our culture tends to get walked into our churches. So leadership is a big topic in the church today. I went up to the local Bible college just up the road, um, corner of uh, City Road and Carillion Avenue. I went in and I had a look around the library there. I just thought to see what they've got on Christian leadership. Uh, There is literally shelf after shelf after shelf after shelf, I kid you not, of just books on Christian leadership. There are all sorts of books there. You can learn how to lead like King Joshua, sorry, how Joshua or King David, lead like Moses. You can lead like the prophet Samuel. You can even learn to lead by, uh, lead like the Lord Jesus in one book. That sounds like a particularly pious book, I guess. There were the cool and trendy books because leadership, you need to be cool and trendy. And so, you know, the books with, you know, it's just got a one word title, all in lowercase, and all the pages are sort of thick and embossed. So that as you sit in your cafe drinking your latte in your cool inner city church plant, you're sort of looking really cool because you're reading a cool book on Christian leadership. There's those ones. There's the ones that have a pseudo-scientific title. They use words like factor, leadership factor, or principle, like whatever. Um, Then there's the ones that I like are the sort of the offbeat ones. My favourite was one, just the title was, They Smell Like Sheep a book on Christian leadership, which certainly made me think, I think it took me about 18 months to work out what it was trying to say, that is, 
Christian leaders are meant to be shepherds. A good shepherd hangs out with the sheep and so a good shepherd, if you meet one, actually smells like the sheep do. So they smell like sheep. But I don't think the author sort of worked out the sheep... I don't know if they'd actually ever smelled a sheep. Sheep stink. Anyway, but maybe that's the point. I don't know. Anyway, let me give you just one sample quote from another book on Christian leadership just to give you a feel for just how much importance is attached to this idea of leadership in the church today. Do you agree with what this guy says? What flourishing churches have in common, he says, is that they are led by people who possess and deploy the spiritual gift of leadership. And he continues, Whenever and wherever I have found a high-impact, Acts 2 prevailing church, I've also discovered a little band of brothers and sisters who are humbly and prayerfully providing the vision, the strategy and the inspiration that enabled an entire congregation to bear fruit abundantly. You notice that first sentence? What flourishing churches have in common is they are led by people who possess and deploy the spiritual gift of leadership. If you want to be part of a flourishing church, what is the critical thing you need? The spiritual gift of leadership to be to be deployed if you want it to be a flourishing church. Do you agree with that? This is, the, this is the importance that's attached to leadership within the Christian community now. So let me ask you a question. If you go to a Christian church, how does your church stack up in the leadership stakes? Just for a moment, think quietly about your pastor or your ministry team or your group of elders How are they going in providing the vision, the strategy and the inspiration that enables the whole congregation to bear fruit abundantly? How are they going at that task? What do you think? Like if you're going to rate them, like, I don't know, seven? Five and a half? Stop! Don't, don't, don't answer that question! You must not answer that question! You have just followed me into a minefield! I know I led you there, but you followed me, (laughs) right? Don't ask that question. We love to ask that question. We love to rate our Christian leaders. We like to say, oh, he's a great preacher. She's really boring. She's an energetic visionary. He's frankly as exciting as a mouldy sandwich. It's natural for us to ask those questions. We want to assess our leaders. We want to rate them. We want to extol them or we want to write them off but it is an incredibly dangerous thing to do. Why? Because it's actually just another form of worldliness that we are walking into the church where it doesn't belong, that sort of attitude. Now, the Corinthians in the New Testament were right into impressive leaders. They liked to compare the different Christian ministers that they'd had. There was the Apostle Paul who came along and planted the church when he left... Apollos came along, who was a great preacher and debater and who we know built up many people in the church. What they tended to do then was form factions on which Christian minister they really liked, Paul or Apollos. And so God uses this letter from Paul back to the Corinthian church to say to them, stop, no, you are playing in a minefield here. This is unspiritual worldliness. That's not how we think about leadership in the Christian community. So what I need you to do now is to sort of hold your breath and gingerly sort of follow me out of the minefield, right? 
And we're going to use what God told these Corinthians through Paul's letter and what he tells us to, part, to sort of chart a course for ourselves out of this leadership minefield and see what God has to say on the matter. Okay, so if you've got a Bible there or you can call it up on your phone, it would be really helpful to look at 1 Corinthians, the first letters of the Corinthians. Uh, this section we're focusing on starts in chapter 3 verse 5, goes through to chapter 4 verse 17. You can read all of it for yourself later on. Paul makes three points as I read it here in this section of 1 Corinthians. Three points about Christian leadership. The first is this. Christian leaders, he says, are impotent servants. God is everything. Christian leaders are impotent, that means powerless servants. God is everything. Now, this is from the passage we just had read for us, particularly chapter 3, verses 5 to 9. You might have noticed in that section as it was read how Paul is constantly trying to redirect their focus from the human leaders to God himself. And he points out three things about Christian leaders in this little section. First of all, he says, leaders or ministers are God's servants. That's the first thing. Verse 5. What then is Apollos, he says, what is Paul? Servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each. So, in other words, let's not get too carried away with this or that Christian minister or leader since they are all just servants. Paul makes the same point a bit later, chapter 4, verse 1. Think of us in this way, he says, as servants of Christ and stewards of God's mysteries. A steward was someone who, often a slave, who looked after a household for the master and he's saying you shouldn't get too caught up on which servant or steward has served you. These guys are serving you as an expression of their service of the Master, the Lord Jesus. Their focus is on serving God in Christ Jesus, so why are you so caught up on focusing on them? Right? The leaders are God's servants. Second thing he then says is that leaders are united in their impotence. It's God who gives the growth, verses 6 and 7. He writes, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, only God who gives the growth. So you can see there Christian leaders and ministers all have different parts to play in God's growing program. Paul planted the church, he planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but they are united in being nothing because God gives all the growth. So you've got to not fall into the trap of thinking that this great ministry, whatever it is, this booming church, this cutting-edge church plant that's making real kingdom gains, don't fall into the trap of thinking any of that growth is actually able to be ascribed to the Christian ministers or leaders who are there. Because any genuine gospel growth comes from God. Without him choosing to work, it doesn't matter how impressive the vision, doesn't matter how inspiring the preaching or how insightful the strategy, none of the actual effectiveness of the ministry can be attributed to us. If your youth group is growing, genuine gospel growth, it's not because you have such an awesome logo or because you run an awesome camp. Or, an, or if it's genuine gospel growth, this passage says, no, you, me, we are nothing. God gives all the growth. So don't fall into the trap that it's about the Christian leaders or ministers. 
Now, yes, God uses the one who plants the seed. He uses the one who waters it. He uses their gifts and their service to grow his kingdom, but the growth comes from him. So we can preach to the cows come home. We can argue our hearts out in evangelism. We can lead Bible studies and youth groups for the next 50 years, but we are all united in our impotence. All the potency, all the power comes from God alone. That's why Paul asked, why are you so hung up then on this leader or that leader? We're nothing. It's God who gives all the growth. And you start to think about that and you think about that, if that's really true, right? If it's really all, any real gospel growth is all from God, there's one thing I think that makes you want to do. It makes you want to pray. At least it should make you want to pray if you actually get that all the growth comes from God. And the final thing he says in this little section is that the whole farm, because he's using an agricultural image, the whole farm belongs to God. Uh, Paul then really ramps it up, I get, in verse 9. The Corinthians had been saying literally, I'm of Paul or I'm of Apollos. And Paul says, actually, you are all of God. Apollos and I, we are workers together of God. And you, you are the field of God. This is God's farm, folks. This is his church. All the leaders and ministers, he says in verse 8, they are one. That is, they have the same rank, the same status. So don't try and exalt one and tear down the other. They are workers together with each other and that together they are working for God. And you, you are the field that belongs to God. So he's putting God back in their picture. And when you do that, you realise that it's all about God. The leaders are his, the church is his, the task that they are doing is his, the fruitfulness that comes from it is all his. When you get that picture right, then you're going to stop getting so hung up on this or that particular Christian leader. Well, how does this impact us? I think we have a very worldly tendency to despise some Christian leaders and ministers and lionise, that is, turn into celebrities, others. The problem isn't always with the particular preacher or the Christian pastor. The problem is actually with us. We walk worldly values into the church and as a result we despise some good Christian leaders and we lionise others. So we despise this or that Christian minister maybe because of the relative poverty, at least in our worldly eyes, the relative poverty of their gifts. Forgetting that are they in control of what gifts they get? Who gives the gifts? 1 Corinthians tells us that the gifts are given by God to them. Or we despise them because of their lack of personal charisma, which is basically just because that's what our world says is impressive and we want to apply that in the church. Or we despise them because of the small size of their church or their ministry or their congregation, when who brings the fruitfulness anyway? It's God who brings genuine gospel growth. Or, tragically, in only the way that Australians know how to do, we actually despise some Christian pastors and leaders because of the large size of the ministry God has entrusted to them. Uh, Because they've got a huge church or because they're on TV or because they're American, we despise them. And yes, I think we actually are that shallow and that racist at that point. But then we lionise, turn into celebrities, others, we lionise the funny preacher, the one who has the great one-liners, the one who has the exciting vision or the one who it seems to us that God is bringing real growth through that person. But let's get a bit of perspective, right? If you're thinking at all 
that maybe it's something about you, you need to go and read Numbers 22. Numbers 22, you don't know Numbers 22? Numbers 22 is all about Balaam and his donkey. Because what you read in Numbers 22 is that a key point in salvation history, God used Balaam's donkey to tell God's word to Balaam. So if God can use Balaam's donkey, he can use anyone. And yet I don't see anyone going to balaamsdonkey.com to download the latest podcast, you know, because the awesome word of God that came out of Balaam. Like, you know, we have... The exciting thing isn't the person speaking. The exciting thing should be the word of God going forth. So maybe we need to sort of do a little bit of self-calibration there. Now the Corinthians were right into judging their leaders and pastors and Paul takes them to task for it as we've started to see. Mind you, his point is not that all judging of leaders is bad or wrong. His point is that judging or assessing Christian leaders or ministry of someone is not your job. It's not your job because God's going to do it himself. So that's the second point we come to in this passage. The Lord will hold all leaders accountable. It flows out of what we've just seen already. Paul said the whole farm belongs to God. We're all working for God. So it's not surprising that he's going to hold his servants accountable. But he doesn't hold them accountable for how much fruit comes from their work. After all, what we've just seen is all the genuine gospel growth comes from God himself. What he holds them accountable for is how they have gone about their service, how they've gone about their ministry. And uh, Paul switches at this point, he switches from an agricultural image to a building one. Mind you, he says this is not any old building project. The building project we are all engaged in is we are building a temple for God, a dwelling place for God. Well, where's that temple? Where's that dwelling place? The answer is it's God's people who are his dwelling place. So when you minister, when you lead a Bible study or when you give a talk at youth group or you teach scripture or you teach kids church, when you minister, you know what you're actually doing? You're putting on a hard hat, you're picking up a nail gun and you're going to work in God's building program to build him a house, a temple for him to live in. So that's what he says there in verse 9, you are God's field and then the switch comes, God's building. Or a bit further down in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3, do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is holy and you, speaking, it's a plural, you together are that temple. And the point Paul makes here is that being a worker in this most important and dignified building project means you're going to be held accountable by the owner. He talks about that in the second half of the passage we had read out at the beginning uh, in chapter 3, verses 10 to 15. Now, what he points out in those verses is that there is a day, with a capital D, a day coming when God's going to test and reveal the quality of each person's ministry. The question is going to be, have you ministered well, built well with flame-proof products like gold, silver, precious stones? Or have you foolishly built with flammable products like wood, hay and straw? Well, God's going to test your ministry and find out how. He's going to set fire to it. He's going to test it with the flamethrower and see whether it lasts the flames or not. Have you built with flammable products, foolishly, or the flame-proof ones? 
And what you, as you go through this passage, there are three types of builders who are identified. Three types. So have a look, uh, first of all, in verse 17, there are the demolishers who are destroyed. You see what he says there? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. So these are the people who instead of trying to build God's people, they actually end up tearing them down. So these are the people who cause division or who discourage the flock, who set a bad example for the flock, who teach untruths that lead God's people into error. The warning for these people is very severe here, isn't it? If you destroy God's temple, his people, God will destroy you. So if you, you minister such that people are torn down rather than built up, you better watch out. God's temple, the church of his people, is precious and holy to him. So we need to heed that warning. And I, it's important that I say this to you. Are you causing needless division in your church by your grumbling, by your complaints, by your spreading slander or gossip? Are you speaking the truth to kids in youth or kids' church but actually living a lie and so actually you're leading them astray by your hypocrisy? Or are you tragically, as we've seen in some of the Royal Commission stuff happening at the moment, are are you even using the church for your own evil ends? Are you preying on God's people to satisfy your quest for power or for sex or for greed? Are you a destroyer? Please, if you are, for your sake and for the sake of the church of God, please repent. Please seek his forgiveness and mercy because remember the Lord does not actually want, desire the death of any sinner but rather they might turn to him and live. But you need to heed God's warning here. His temple is holy and precious to him and he will destroy those who destroy his temple. That's the first group of people who are mentioned. The second group of people you can find in this passage are a bit earlier. They're me-centred whose ministry is burnt up. Uh, These are the people who, instead of building with gold, silver, precious stones, they build with the flammable products of wood, hay and straw. Flammable products just aren't much use if you're trying to build a flame-proof house. It's pretty dumb, right? What does it mean to build with flammable products? What does that mean? I think the key to understanding this is a bit further on in the passage, chapter 4, verse 5. Chapter 4, verse 5. Let me read it to you. Therefore, Paul writes, judge nothing before the appointed time, wait until the Lord comes. So he's talking about that final day that's coming. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and, notice this next phrase, he will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. The focus seems to be on motives. Why are you doing this ministry? Were you doing it to get praise from others, which really means you were just doing it for yourself, or were you doing it for God? Because that was the Corinthian culture, was to seek praise or commendation from people. They wanted human respect and honour and glory. And now they've walked that into the church. They were all interested in me ministry rather than he ministry, if you get what I mean. The motive was for themselves, their own ego and self-esteem, not God's glory. But God says, the day's coming when the motives of your heart will be exposed 
which is the same thing Jesus had said. If you go way back to Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus speaks to people and says, Beware of practising your piety before others in order to be seen by them. He's focusing on motive. And then he said, For then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. If you're doing me ministry, you need to watch out because you are building with flammable products and there's a firestorm coming. You will be saved, the passage is clear, because you, you have a genuine trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. But that final day will reveal a motive of your ministry and you could well be left with nothing left. So make sure you get your motives right. You have to fight pride. Because pride is the envious heart that generates a me ministry. Pride. Uh, Richard Baxter was a pastor way back in the 17th century. He wrote this in his classic, The Reformed Pastor, which was published more than 350 years ago. And you'll say, what's that got to say to me? Well, let me just tell you, as I put this up and you read it, the human heart has not changed. And I think the things he says here are quite profound and worth listening to. So this is Richard Baxter in 1656. He says, Pride maketh men, both in studying and preaching, to seek themselves and deny God, when they should seek God's glory and deny themselves. When they should inquire, What shall I say and how shall I say it to please God best and do the most good? Pride makes them ask, What shall I say and how shall I deliver it to be thought a learned, able preacher? and to be applauded by all that hear me. When the sermon is done, pride goeth home with them and maketh them more eager to know whether they were applauded than whether they did prevail for the saving of souls. Were it not for shame, they could find it in their hearts to ask people how they like them and draw out their commendations. If they perceive that they are highly thought of, they rejoice as having attained their end. But if they see that they are considered but weak or common men, they are displeased as having missed the prize they had in view. It's so easy, let me tell you, it is so easy at the end of an EU public meeting to gather all the connect cards and scour them for positive comments about the talk. To jump onto Twitter or Facebook, see if anyone's put out there any pearls of wisdom. You know why I know that's so easy to do? because I've done it. I'm not happy about it and I'm not proud of the fact. Pride is right there and we have to fight it every step of the way. And the reality is, what this passage is saying, on that final day, my motives and yours, my motives will be laid bare. My ministry will be tested by the Lord's fire. And quite possibly, quite a bit will get burnt up. Friends, put pride to death in the power of the Spirit. Get rid of that envious heart that generates a me-centred ministry. We need to seek God's glory because we are God's servants in God's building project and the glory is His. Well, there's a third group of builders in this passage. The third group of builders are the wise builders who receive a reward. 
Uh, To minister or build wisely in God's building project in this passage, you need to do two things according to this passage. First, you need to have the right motives. That's what it means to build, I think, with precious stones, silver and gold. Minister with all the strength, yes, and the gifts, yes, and the opportunities, yes, that God gives you, but do it all for his glory and not your own. But second, according to this passage, you have to build on the right foundation. And Paul says in 3.11, no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. We're going to come back to what that might mean in just a moment. But what's promised to the wise builder here in verse 14 is a reward. If what has been built on the foundation survives, the builder receives a reward. Well, I wonder what sort of reward that might be. Um, I think because basically we're very materialistic and worldly, we imagine rewards in the age to come. Maybe that means that you get the luxury sort of harbourside mansion with the yacht sort of tied up. That's the sort of rewards God's got in store for you if you're a wise builder. Well, I think that's just you know, worldly materialism completely corrupting your eschatology at that point. But anyway. <laughs> Others have said, well, maybe, maybe the reward is seeing the fruit of your ministry survive. Well, I mean, Paul does say in some places he calls the people he's ministering to his crown and joy, so it could be. But actually, I think the the clue in this passage to what Paul's talking about here is again in 4 verse 5, when he said, at that time, on that final day, each will receive their praise from God. I think that the reward promised to the wise builder is the praise of God. Now that fits really well with the Corinthian context because they were all on about getting praise and adulation from other people and again I think Paul's trying to refocus them and saying, no, no, the praise and the adulation you want is the one that might come from God himself, not from other people. It's the well done, good and faithful servant. That's the reward. And and you're going at this point, oh, okay. Hmm. Think about it for a moment. The almighty God in the person of Jesus, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, he looks at you and you. He looks at you and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, I reckon I could live off that for all eternity. How amazing would that be that the Lord Jesus himself would say that to me, little unworthy me? I think that's the reward, that each might receive their praise from God. Well, the implication, I think, for all of this is pretty clear. Paul says it there in 3 verse 10, be careful how you build in God's building project because the Lord himself would judge what sort of work we've done. But then the final thing that Paul says here, he really ramps it up, as Paul so often does. The third point, he says, is that Christian leaders embody the cross of Jesus. I find this one of the scariest facets of this section of 1 Corinthians that we're looking at today because Paul's deeper point to the Corinthians is the reason that they have wandered into the leadership minefield, he says, is because you don't understand Christian living. You don't understand what the Christian life is about. The issue isn't really just leadership. The more fundamental issue is, do you understand what Christian life is about? And that scares me a bit because I find that we so often walk into that same leadership minefield and it makes me think, well, maybe 
have we really got the right picture of what Christian life is about? Have a look in chapter 4, verses 8 to 17, what Paul says. I'm going to read it out for us. Chapter 4, verse 8 to 17. I want you to hear the contrast Paul draws here between his experience of the Christian life and the way the Corinthians were trying to spin their Christian life. Okay? 4, verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Quite apart from us, you have become kings. Indeed, I wish you had become kings so that we might be kings with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, as those sentenced to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to mortals. We are fools for the sake of Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honour, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we are hungry and thirsty, we're poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we grow weary from the work of our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we speak kindly. We've become like the rubbish of the world, the dregs of all things, to this very day. I'm not writing this to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you might have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. Indeed, in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. I appeal to you then, be imitators of me. For this reason, I sent you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ Jesus, as I teach them everywhere in every church. So you get that contrast. Paul contrasts the Corinthian Christian's attitude to life. We are reigning, we are kings, we've got it all already with his own. I'm like one condemned to die in the arena. I'm a laughingstock. I'm a spectacle of derision and scorn. We're fools for Christ. We're weak, we're dishonoured, but you're so wise, so honoured. He paints a very attractive picture, not, of Christian ministry to them, doesn't he? He says, right now, we are hungry, we are thirsty, we're clothed in rags, we're brutally treated, we're homeless, we're cursed, persecuted, slandered, viewed as the scum of the earth and the garbage of the world. Well, why wouldn't you want to be a Christian leader at that point? But then Paul has the temerity to say to them, therefore I urge you to imitate me. You can imagine them going, Paul, Paul, I mean, you've got to be kidding. What, in your beatings, in your rags, in your poverty, dishonour, shame, imitate you? We're not going to win many converts here in sophisticated Corinth that way, Paul. Who's going to respect us? Who's going to listen to us if we imitate you? Surely we've got to be impressive because that's what they want out there and we've got to show we're more impressive in Christ than them. We've got to mix it with them, supersede them, show them the superiority of Jesus' way in all the world. Paul says, but this is the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what it is to build on the foundation of the Lord Jesus, the only foundation there can be for any Christian ministry. This is cross-shaped ministry. This is God's wisdom that appears foolishness to the world. This is God choosing the weak to shame the strong. Don't you get it? This is Christian life and leadership in the shadow of the cross. Now, our world wants slick, schmick professionalism. And we think that what Christian ministry needs to be like to make gains for God, is we think it needs to be smooth and impressive and powerful. 
We want to go to Christian meetings with large numbers and the appearance of strength, power and wisdom in the world's eyes. I just wonder if we've forgotten the very character of Christian life, the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is power, but it's God's power expressed in human weakness. And when God's power comes to human weakness, it doesn't make you triumphant. It doesn't turn you into a superhero in the world. His power enables weak you and me to persevere in our weakness, to transform us into the likeness of the Lord Jesus, even through struggles and hardship. That's what he's doing. Well, Christian leaders, Christian living, it has to be cross-shaped. I mentioned at the start a book on Christian leadership called They Smell Like Sheep. It's not a bad title, but I think think a better one might be Christian leaders, they look like the shepherd. They look like the shepherd. And that's how they conserve the sheep. Well, we've tried to weave our way out of the minefield. What do we learn along the way? Christian leaders are impotent servants, so keep God at the centre of the picture. Christian leaders are held accountable, so be careful how you build. And Christian leaders, and the whole of the Christian life, is to be cross-shaped, so embrace the cross-shaped life and ministry. We have just a couple of minutes for questions, if you would like to share some, but just in a loud voice so we can all hear. That would be great. Yeah. What do you think are some practical ways to get rid of pride? Okay, thank you. Great question. What are some practical ways to get rid of pride? Some practical ways. Um, pride is insidious. It's often there and it will just grab you at any sort of moment. So you've got to be, you need to put it to death in the power of the Spirit. One of the practical ways I try to do that is I try to remember whenever I'm trying to minister to other people, I try to always. Uh, express my acknowledgement that it's God is the, is the centre of this ministry by praying, even while I might be talking to somebody. In my head, I'm listening, but I'm also praying and asking God for help to express dependence. That's one way. The other thing I often do is before I come to sort of give a talk or something like that, I often pray a very simple prayer. It's just, Lord, more of you, less of me. At one level, I really don't care if no one knows my name or everyone forgets who, who, who was the person speaking that day as long as the word of God grips people's hearts and minds and transforms them into the likeness of Jesus. So I pray, Lord, more of you, less of me as a way of keep just trying to fight that. But then you know the other thing? Don't look on Facebook, don't look on Twitter. I'm, I'm serious. And you know the ANCON team, not ANCON team, what is this? Public meetings. Public meetings team do a great thing by not giving me any positive comments you write down. I don't know if that's just because they're inefficient or because they made a, a decision for my welfare, but <laughs> they, I, the positive comments don't come through, but your questions do. So, you know, yeah, that's one, that's one thought. Anything else? How does it affect ideas of excellence in the workplace? That's a really good question. I'm not sure how I want to answer it, partly because when you're in the workplace, um, if you're not the boss, 
I know you all think you'll be the boss, but you won't be. Um, You're not the boss and so provided it's not something that's unethical or immoral and the boss says, I want you to make that look better because it doesn't look any good and no one's going to buy our product if you don't make it look... Well, you're an employee, so you do what they ask you to do. Do you know what I mean? Um, I think actually the more challenging question is, what does it look like in the church? How many times do we argue over fonts? EU has a style guide. You can't make your own EU poster because we don't want it to look bad. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Or just culturally neutral? I think my answer, I think it's much trickier in the church, right, because we, want to, we have a sense of wanting to compete with the world out there and, and win them by our coolness, our logo, our look at our style guide. But the danger is what happens if we fall off one of two cliffs. One cliff is we think this is the answer. If we can just make it look great, if we can just have really fantastic lighting and sound and music, then people will go, wow, I want to love Jesus. Really? No, it's the word that makes the difference, right? So don't fall into that category. But also, you can so do a bad job of sort of advertising or just sort of putting things out there that people can't understand it. And it makes no sense and it becomes a barrier. So you've got to make sure it's not a barrier to people hearing the gospel, but also not start thinking it can be a substitute for the gospel or it's going to be the attractive thing that will get them to hear the gospel there's a happy middle space, wide middle space in the middle and I think the EU's done well with this, saying we don't want, we don't want it to be a barrier but we also don't think that this is you know, the answer that is going to get people to hear Jesus. Well, if you think that, it's just not true. God is the one who brings any gospel growth. Thanks. I uh, look forward to seeing you next week. We're just going to do some important stuff right now but next week, spiritual sex. So we'll talk about that.